Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. These panels have been made possible thanks to Double Exposure and their game design convention Metatopia at Metatopia Online 2020. These panels have also been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and moderators at this event. Now, let's get to it. Episode 295, Integrating the Natural World. Presented by Gion Shim, Miguel Baker, and Jason Morningstar. Um, the critical role that uh, the natural world plays in game design and gameplay and um, why it's important to treat it as an active participant rather than just a backdrop. Um, my name is Jian Shim. I use she, her pronouns. Uh, who else would like to introduce themselves? I'm Miguel Baker, and I also use she, her pronouns. And I'm Jason Morningstar. I use he, him pronouns. Awesome. Um, Shout out to uh, Steve Radebach, who's doing all of our tech stuff for us. Um, this you know, would not go without him. And if you have any questions that you'd like to ask any of the three of us or any combination of the three of us, uh, throw them up in the Twitch chat room and he will pass them on. Um, so again, thank you for joining us. Uh, the reason why um, I wanted to pitch this panel in the first place is because I have a several year background in outdoor education. It's a formative passion in my life. Um, and it's actually also the way that I got introduced to game design. Um, but that doesn't seem, it didn't seem super typical initially until I started making friends and getting to know people. And then I met a lot of people with various backgrounds in outdoor work, field work. Um, and it seems like it is really uh, influential in the work of a lot of people um, I've come to, to call my friends and look up to as, as peers and designers. So the first question that I'd love to just kick us off with is what are our respective backgrounds in outdoor field work? What might people who know your work not know about that aspect of your life? Uh, Jason, do you wanna start off? Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, so I don't have any professional experience as a guide or a uh, outdoor field work kind of person. I had the good fortune of growing up in an avid outdoors kind of uh, setting. Uh, my family's enthusiastic about that. And I was really uniquely positioned for a few years to be surrounded by uh, National Outdoor Leadership School guides and uh, other people who were excited about the outdoors who would take, would take me on difficult and remarkable trips in South Central Alaska for about five years. So I got out and did a lot. And there was a, I also worked in outdoor retail at that time. So there was a five-year chunk in my life where not only was I getting out as often as I could in a really great place to, to paddle and hike and climb. But I was also um, advising uh, other people in, in, in a way that uh, I took very seriously because it's, it's a pretty unforgiving environment. And uh, were I to advise them wrong, they could die. So um, uh, that's, that's sort of my, my thing. Also, I'm an amateur historian and I've always really been interested in the sort of the interplay of the way the land uh, shapes human experience. So that's, that's me. Awesome. Um, I similarly had a very sort of outdoor childhood. I grew up until I was 12 in very rural upstate New York. And then I moved to San Diego, which is a big city and total culture shock. Uh, but one of the things that really influenced my life is that when I was 20, I had like, been through like 46 of the 48 states. You know, we really had a focus on seeing the natural world, like go everywhere, look at things um, just as a family. And it wasn't just like drive over or fly over. It was like, you need to go and be in the spaces and see them. Um, I was very woodsy always as a kid and past not this year of course and not last spring but for the six years before that i have been the uh, lead adult support person on a week-long 
outdoor LARP intensive for the local middle middle and high school, seventh to 12th grade. So that is like a hard and fast intersection of outdoor skills and game design work where we're absolutely shaped in our play from what outdoor resources we have available to us, where we are. I mean, if there's water, great, we'll use water. If there's woods, great. There are woods here in our outdoor play world. So um, a lot of that, um, I also was an EMT I, uh, before I had kids. I also have a little bit of that like wilderness stuff, but never in a uh, never in an advisory position like you were, Jason. Um, oh. And there's a whole bunch of things for me about just living in New England currently because the natural world um, always has things that are challenging about negotiating with it, but might be cold enough out to kill you, um, you know, when you literally could die of exposure if you don't take care of yourself. Um, it just makes it a little more visceral for me old houses and I work in old museums and very, very much aware of the effect of natural processes always. So that's where I come from. What about you, Gian? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get into it in a second, but really quickly, Meg, like, don't you also do some kind of like outdoor museum work as well, like artifact recovery or something like that? Yeah. So, um, there's several different, uh, that's a great question, yes. There's several different parts of the museum work that I um, am involved with that are uh, either current ar archeological dig sites, often with children, um, often, you know, there's one that happens every year that is about cleaning up the Connecticut River watershed. Uh, and so the fourth and seventh graders spend a day pulling everything they can out of the water, which is great um, as part of a really interdisciplinary approach to systems um, in the natural world. And then through the museums, there's it, it constantly comes up, um, particularly around indigenous uh, history. And um, yeah, you know, so the Connecticut River is absolutely central to indigenous story in um, New England. And so as I am involved in local history, that is a huge piece of it, a huge piece of um, paying attention to how flood patterns expose objects um, and artifacts and uh, how e erosion uh, interacts with indigenous sites and you know what we can do in a professional uh, museum capacity to hold on to that. Um, also with just like 17th century, 18th and 19th century, um sites as well by the time you get into 20th century it's you know it's usually pretty stable <laughs> but um you know every time there's a giant flood or a hurricane or a fire or anything that is the natural world making itself extremely evident um there's an intersection of my museum work and my history work um i talk a whole long time about that too <laughs> Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, in the interest of time, I'll try to keep my background very brief. Um, it, so I worked for six years as an outdoor educator. I taught mostly kids, but some adult courses as well, um, wilderness survival skills, mostly through LARPing um, and uh, imaginative role playing. It was uh, through a company that's local and also in Portland and a couple other remote sites. And um, it was actually uh, in many ways first introduction to being outside in a formal way. I'd never like really gone camping. I'd never really even gone to summer camp. Um, but uh, I, I hit a lot of firsts through that job. My first time camping, my first time sleeping out, like sleeping out on the ground um, in a tent and then not in a tent and then on a ground pad and then with, uh, with forage materials. Like um, it was my first time um, uh, slaughtering a livestock animal was my first time learning about um, Western herbalism versus the herbalism I grew up with. All of these uh, naturalist skills like um, synthesized into this job that was about like, how do you make kids excited to be outside in a sustainable way? And one of the values that was hammered into us as staff and mentors and teachers was how do you get kids to see 
their community is not just a group of people around them, but the non-human community as well. Mm-hmm. Right? The mm-hmm. that always visits their yard um, with mm-hmm. like the nub tail, the uh, crows they see on their way to school, all of the animals that we saw, all the plants, right? Like they recognize trees in their yard as like the climbing tree or the reading tree. All of these are part of their community as well. And um, in many circles, that might seem like a really hippy-dippy idea. I totally own and acknowledge that. But I really strongly believe that um, there's that's like critical to not only understanding um, our place in the world and our part as individuals uh, in a species that's like part of a huge network, um, but also as game designers and players, every time we talk about group integration or um, holistic play or how to facilitate a game better, how to just make your game table more fun. I think about that, the like human and non-human community. And I think about how much of my work um, starts from there and starts with integrating mm. like literally the the physical place you are as the starting point of your play experience um, yeah. and everything that entails. So while I could go into all of the really cool, glamorous details about, um, you know, a job, <laughs> uh, that, was, that was really one of the coolest jobs I've ever had. At the same time, that's almost not the point. Um, the point is how do we teach our peers and people who are both new to games and also been doing it a lot as players or designers to recognize their own capacity for this kind of connection with the land around them? And then how do they integrate that in a way that benefits the community as a whole? Um, and to that end, I would love to, um, ask both of you, what games have we written? And we can talk about our own games. We can spotlight each other's games. What games have we written where the outdoors play a pivotal role, whether in mechanics, character, tone, or, or something else? And Meg, I'd love to hear you start. Um, I wrote a whole cycle of games, Playing Nature's Year, which is uh, really, in ways, my love letter to living in New England. And uh, every single one of those games is incredibly grounded in living in New England. You know, what's going on in the natural world? What is, uh, what are the stars doing? What are the plants doing? What are the animals doing? What foods are relevant to this? Um, And one of the games in there, actually, a couple games in there, um, but there's a game in there that is specifically about going for a walk. You know, you take some dice and you go for a walk and you use the dice as determiners for whether you're going to turn left or right or continue on your current path. Um, and there's bits of, you know, by the dice roll, now is when you stop and have a drink of water. And by the dice roll, now is when you stop and have a snack. And by the dice roll, now is when you stop and really like, meditate for a moment of like, wow, what is the space here and where have I arrived? Um, that integra- in, uh, integration moment of when the game and the natural world uh, overlap. Um, and that's, that's like, think, you know, it's called, it's called Ramble in the New Moon, Ramble in the New Moon Hay. Um, and it's just this little walking game. And I think that's definitely the game of mine that is most right on the nose about the intersection of uh, the natural world and um, play. But I also am very much reminded of um, Thousand One Nights. And the reason for that is because something Jian said uh, about the way that awareness of the natural world is part of your gameplay and part of your game design also is about broader systems thinking and that you're not just thinking about what are we doing on the paper? You're thinking about, okay, what is the light like here? What am I smelling? What is, what is the physical space like? How do we move in this physical space and how that directly impacts the kinds of experiences we can have. And that is absolutely a game design component for me. Um, and, and is like, for me with uh, bushwhacking through woods that I don't know what I, that I've never been through before and I don't know where the buried holes are or water or wires and you know I've, I've got to be careful and very very aware um, and that aspect of game design 
I think, is part of what, or, or that, that aspect of experience in nature and that awareness of natural surroundings is part of what informs Thousand One Nights and other game design that I've done where I'm paying a lot of attention to what else is in the room. You know, not just the people in the paper and the dice, but what else is in the room. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I'm gonna throw it over to Jason now too. I'd love to hear about some of the games that uh, fulfill this function for you. I think uh, I, I may come at it from a slightly different point of view. One thing that what you just said, Meg, that's, that reminded me is that um, many of these things are designable surfaces. So time and light are designable surfaces, right? Um, so I have a game called The Skeletons where um, at various points in the game, you turn the lights out and sit in silence for a, up to five minutes. And sitting in a room for five minutes in total darkness with a group is it's a long time. It, it gives you a real, um, a real different perspective on the on on just sort of the embodiment that you're experiencing. Uh, so it doesn't it doesn't directly correlate to talking about the the natural world, uh, but it does I think uh, lead in that direction, right? Paying attention to the space around us. Um, I, I when when uh, when we started talking about this, I thought about some of my games, and I realized that in in many cases. Uh, the the natural world is a um, is a, a focus of oppression in my games, which I, I think mm. is interesting and something I need to think about. Um, so it, I've got a LARP called The Climb, which is about an illegal ascent to a, on a mountain in Bhutan, and the landscape is absolutely uh, there to be exploited and conquered. Uh, very deliberately, and uh, it's it's built into the scenario that what you're doing is wrong, uh, but it's there, and uh, um, I, I think that that that's an interesting. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's maybe it's not interesting, but it's certainly a commentary on my experience mountaineering, right? Where, where the landscape is often seen that way. Um, I've written games uh, that uh, in that uh, same. In that same vein, uh, games where the um, the natural world is unknowable or, or outside your experience. I wrote a role-playing game called Durance, where um, the world is described as an environmental failure state. You you collaboratively create uh, an environment that is unsustainable and unsurvivable uh, by whatever you're making choices, but the end result will always be an environment that's implacably hostile to human life. Uh, which oh, again, okay. like. Think about think about what you're doing, Jason. But, uh, uh, so, so there, there are two examples. I could go on, but I'll I'll stop there. How about you, Gian? Oh gosh, I mean, given um, kind of my starting point in design, um, which was initially as a as a an arm of this company I worked for before I started doing my own independent stuff. Like, I can't. It's hard to think of an example of one of my games that doesn't use. Uh, the natural world in, in some capacity. Um, Can I ask you to talk about to one in particular? Yeah, yeah. Can uh, Can you talk about the witch's cottage? Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, absolutely. It's actually maybe my favorite game of my own that I've written. Um, unfortunately, it is not available for sale anywhere because uh, I don't know how to make it possible to play in, in pandemic conditions. But um, the witch's cottage, for a very brief summary, is a uh, is sort of a story told in three parts. You embody four characters with only two players. So each player gets a chance to play two different people in the story. You start off as a witch uh, with their apprentice. You know the witch finder is coming for you and the game's mechanics are about you trying to figure out how to convince the other to let you sacrifice yourself. The second part is whoever um, is the sacrifice uh, in uh, their interrogation with the Witchfinder. It's the it's the most intense, bleak part of the story. Um, and then the third part is whoever survived is now uh, many years later living at first alone and now with a novice that they've decided for the reasons you'd create in character development to train as well. And so it's a story about things that happen to you and then surviving through them and, and then how you continue the cycle and, and legacy. But the natural world um, is very present in it in the language I use. The uh, uh, mechanics themselves initially were 
um, all centered around a bowl of water. And then I had to change it to stones in the first act. You're like arranging stones as like a magical like talismanic chore. And the second one, the stones are actually placed on the player's body to represent every time something happens. Um, an oblique way of referring to real uh, physical oppression and torture that happened to people who were accused of being witches. And then in the third act, it's um, used as a, as a method of healing, like magical healing. Um, and ideally, those stones or that water is actually brought in from the outside. These games have only been played in convention spaces, which is kind of wild to me. Um, really <laughs> borderline, not sterile, but certainly uh, maybe a little stale uh, indoor spaces, some of which don't even have windows. Um, and uh, it, it stems from um, getting my start in game design, which was like, my job was to literally get people interested in going outside, knowing that that was the physical space that they would be playing in. So how do you do that? Um, and it's very intuitive to me to figure out ways to bring the outside in. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, that's a great example. The Witch's Cottage, um, I have no idea when or how I'll publish it, but I would really, really like to. I really enjoy it. Um, and then I have ideas. Uh, um, and then I'm trying to think of another game that's like my own that that really is like that, but is dissimilar. But actually, I'd love to highlight other games of yours that like struck me that weren't mentioned. So Miguel, actually, under Hollow Hills, um, similarly, while you're not literally outside, it takes a lot of aesthetic um, from the natural. Yeah. I noticed like the language, even the the archetypes that you play are very much based in like a Celtic mythology, but also like is itself animistic, right? It's in, in the land, mm -hmm. it's animals, weather patterns. Um, and then, uh, Jason, I was going to say um, the Isabel, right? Like the counterpoint to Deadhouse. Oh, actually. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like, talk mm -hmm. about brutal, but also, like, that's a part of the natural world, too, right? Like, I think there's a way to write about it that doesn't always make it um, gentle or embracing, like, uh, our unofficial motto at work used to be nature doesn't give a fuck about you and it wasn't supposed to be like punitive it was just like a stated just, fact right yeah like, it's just true it's just true yeah. yeah um and i think that that's a really important part of understanding and integrating that play because if you're hosting a game outside right like i've hosted a lot of larps outside with a lot of players along a wide range of capacity to be outside safely um how do you steward that experience without causing great risk of, of physical harm, not just to you, but also to the space that you're in, right? Um, which is an equally large fear. Of I'm Come, here. Come here. Sorry, I have a bit of natural world intruding. <laughs> it's okay, Jane. Come here. Kitty, 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 kitty. Okay. So, and so that's the question. So um, I think for anyone who's watching, uh, I would I would love um, to go through like the the bibliographies of game designers you like and and look for the games that they've written probably that also reflect uh, the natural world and kind of what you can tell about their perspective of interacting with it from what they've written because I guarantee many game writers in this indie scene are absolutely influenced by by nature and the outdoors. Yeah, and it may not be obvious. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Meg. Oh, please go. No, I was going to say that. Um, that those themes might be buried, right? Or they might be oblique within a particular work. That's all. I think it's a really sure. important point though, because one of the things about like, you have to, um, to you know, find ways to inter interact and engage at all different levels and all different places. And not everybody can do, you know, a week long hike in the Sierra Nevadas to, be in nature in that way and you know having something like isabel or uh under hollow hills or the witch's cottage that they play at a convention and draw from that because as we are all part of the natural world we can all we can find ways to meet everybody where they are but that that stealthy piece um like i love knowing that like in the climb doesn't give a fuck and you know you're not supposed to be there and it's kind of out to get you you know that is grand i love that even if it's not you know super some of our games say things stronger on the cover than they than they 
games are, are more um, forthright with what is going on within them and some aren't. But I also, I want to hear about, if we have time, um, do we have an hour or half an hour? Where are we at with that? We have an hour, so we have about Oh, yay, good, okay, because I wanted to ask about um, like formative moments, because there's there's a formative moment or a moment that I, I uh, come back to over and over in game design that involves my experiences in nature and my like formative moment that is so clear to me is being in high school being in a tent in the Anza Borrego desert in southern california um in the summer and the wind on the tent just going whoop, 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 whoop. so annoying could not sleep frustrating beautiful warm night but i'm in this tent and it's just making this annoying sound. And as soon as I went out of the tent, you know, this tent was where I was supposed to be human, right? This is my little space where this is where I'm supposed to be in a tent. And as soon as I went out of the tent, it was like this totally quiet, beautiful, all the stars in the universe right there and the breeze was just like enough to keep it beautifully cool to sleep and it was this i mean i have i'm i have this physical reaction right now of like ha ah, you know because that was a moment that i still go back to of a time pushing my like getting myself out of my own head getting myself out of what i thought was my comfort zone and that those things that specific experience in um is so integral and i don't even think i think what jason just said you know it, it's stealthy i don't even really think i was this moment it might have been this conversation that i became aware of like oh that moment mm. to experience something else to experience this in a different way is very much part of game design. So, it's do you do you have a similar moment that you can point to, or like this is an experience in in nature that that shapes you in some way like that? Yeah, I think I do. Uh, shall I share? Um, Please, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So for me, one of the things that has has really shaped my experience as a designer is the idea that the uh, um, the, the the thing that you're making has a voice and it's going to tell you kind of what it wants to be, which is sort of similar to how sculptors often often think about their work. Uh, and I really think this is true. And I know it's a little, it sounds a little out there, but but I, I think your work speaks to you and, and can guide you if you listen to it. Um, and I think, I'm pretty sure I learned that in the natural world uh, where, as we have established, it does not give a fuck. Uh, and you are going to adapt to its demands, right? Um, it, it, it's it, that's just the way it is. Uh, and you know, I can give very concrete examples of that, but I think we all can can attest to uh, the the fact that we're a very minor player uh, and in in a much bigger ecosystem, and that we're going to conform to its its requirements, uh, and and learn what it wants from us. I guess is the the second piece to that. So that, that's, I guess, what I would say about that. Uh, my, my, my examples are sort of traumatic. So like, they're, 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 they're hard learned, hard learned lessons. Uh, anyway, I'm anxious to hear what you have to say, Gian. Sure. Um, yeah, I've got some, uh, some pair bending stories too, but they always like cycle in and out of, of these like really quietly revelatory moments as well. Um, and I guess to like bring it specifically to games, the first, I think the, I think the first LARP I ever wrote, because this was before I was a coordinator and program designer, the first LARP I ever wrote was um, for teenagers with an adult staff who were age peers with me. So no one was older than like, I want to say like 35. Um, most of the adult staff were in their 20s and, and early 30s. And the kids ranged from like, 12 to 16. So we could push pretty hard with the themes. Um, and I wrote a game that uh, essentially was um, about like, I don't know, like colonialism, burn it down without being like 
really heavy handed about it. It was like a land based fantasy game with druidic magic and an institutional magic. And um, this is a mechanic that's actually become a signature of mine in a lot of my work now. In order to cast any magic, you had to find something in the land, make sure it was safe to touch, touch it, and then call upon an aspect of whatever you were touching to cast on the person. So like you could like grab a handful of ivy for a binding spell. And that was if you were um, from, the, from the witch clan. And then the institutional magic was about, instead of integrating yourself, um, you decided what your will was and then put the pieces in there to work it with a lot of fallout after. Um, and uh, that's pretty, it's not subtle. Um, <laughs> it's not subtle to us. But the kids loved it. Um, one of the things I was really worried about was some of the staffers had expressed um, some anxiety. There was one person who was actually like really hesitant to be outside. Um, and uh, she came up to me after the game and she was like, hey, I really want to go hiking. How do you do that? And I was like, uh, I don't know. And we just talked about it for a bit. And she goes, I just want to thank you also because like I was kind of afraid to do this game because I don't really like being outside, but my character died the second I died um, the wind passed through the glade that I was in and I saw a shooting star I just had this moment where I was like holy shit we really are all connected like there's no division between us and what's out there um, and it made me want to go for a hike for the first time in my life and I feel like that's a that's a really great thing and that like blew my mind like this idea that through imaginative play um, you could create your own connection right because the connection's always there you just have to recognize it um and that was extremely formative for me i was like fuck i want to do this all the time like that's <laughs> um the other moments are are like innumerable and and in some ways smaller because um they're with children but like, i hold each one of them in my memory uh very close to me like um there was one yeah, I had a group of second graders when I was still just an instructor and they were like, the group dynamic was just, there was a lot of friction. I was like, how the fuck do I get them to chill out, right? Like it was Tuesday or Wednesday when the spike always goes up in their behavior. And so I was like, okay, mm -hmm. in a school of magic, which um, is not really uh, combat or conflict based. So I was like, okay guys, here's what we're going to do. Here's a bunch of herbs. I taught them the herbs. And then I was like, you are going to use this herb a little bit, but you have to wake it up. And so they would have to whisper like the story of like if they had a, a chamomile bud or something, they'd be like, you started as a seed and then you grew in the earth. And like they they would have to wind the story out before they used it. And they were like sitting there with these dried herbs, like whispering into their hands, like at the edge of a creek. Um, lots of little moments where they actually decided to really engage with it. They they were like, no, this is this is cool. I want to do this. Um, and uh those moments when you realize, um, for me, just speaking for myself, that this thing that you don't want to get too preachy about, but it's so hard not to, but like you really want to hammer it home when it actually works and you've done like minimal leading, it feels like, um, and people just get there on their own. It's like such a vindication that like, it's true that it's just a door that's always open and people just forget. Um, and all of those moments are, are extremely like important to me, um, every single one. So really beautiful. Um, thank you. I think um, there's can I can I add add a little bit to that? There's, um, there's a yeah, in the interest of time, just because we're over half an hour at this point and I want to okay. get to some of the, the people's questions. Um I just want oh, sure. to talk. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Um I'll do it in ten seconds or less. It's authentic experience, you know, that, that it's authentic, like this, I am experiencing a real thing. You know, that's that moment. Um, and it's, 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 I love what you just said, and it's always available to us, but we sometimes forget that we can experience a real thing. Um, and then the quick thing, COVID-19, outside is where it's safe. My kids are sitting outside right now in the cold. Um, 10 feet across from other friends over a giant fire built because that is a way that they can be safe. And they have been to more extremes of to, in, to figure out how do we all be safe from this deadly virus doors in the cold or the heat or the rain. 
um, that they've endured more and they've discovered more. And I'm just, you know, if there's a golden lining, that's it. Cool. That's all I had to say. Thank you. So we've had some, it seems like we've had some really concrete examples, but I'm interested. I think I'm imagining that, that uh, people watching this want to know how they can center their work in the natural world more. And also the, there might be the question, why is that even important? And I'd love to get both your takes on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd love to answer this question because I think I have my, my Twitch window open and I think it actually touches on um, a question that game biologists asked about, uh, I'll just read it out, uh, looking for your designs has helped me think about ways to help people make that connection, this land connection. Um, and that connection is the reason I'm excited about work now. And then someone else asked, um, it's easy to see nature as a thing separate from human spaces. How would you suggest designing to put players in a game where anthropogenic nature is centered and places the players as part of that natural system? Um, that is, I'm so glad someone asked that question because um, I really believe that one of the worst things to happen on an environmental justice uh, level is concept of the natural world. Period, right? Rather than just like a single biosphere that we all live in, um, the separation that happens linguistically, which immediately, you know, just cascades into an emotional separation, a societal separation, a separation of priorities. Like you, you just people intrinsically, I think, as they're raised, think of themselves as separate from the world around them. Um, and so, I think uh, treating this almost like a logistical question, right? Like what kind of design techniques can you use? Um, what strategies? Uh, for me, I like to think about like, how would someone living in like a landlocked suburb where you have to drive 15 minutes to get to a, a target and maybe there's like a park 10 minutes away, but it's very manicured. Like how do they feel like the moments that we've had when we've been outside, right? Um, you can't, you absolutely can't in that environment. And I think starting with this idea, which is very relevant right now in pandemic conditions of regardless of what game you make, thinking about where are people literally physically going to be playing this game? Are they going to be outside by a stream bed in the spring? Like I fucking hope so at least once in their life, but like realistically people who buy games in large numbers, um, they're going to be playing them at home inside. Um, and some ways COVID is making it more apparent that like if you want to be with people outside is best right but also real like again realistically you're going to be doing it the way we're talking now over zoom so how what are some strategies that you two can think of to incorporate into the design aspect of it something that immediately comes to mind is um um bespoke games right so like it's a game for this particular piece of landscape. Like this is a place we're going to play it and it incorporates the features of this place uh, and it can't be played anywhere else. And uh, I've experimented with that. Uh, I have a game that's done for a particular park near my house, but that I've never had a chance to play because the world fell apart. Um, but I'm hoping that I'll get a chance to. It, it involves- Can I shout out? I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Tell me about what that game involves. I want to hear about what that game involves first, and then I'll show oh, a, a different title. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's called Rock Island, and it's a uh, um, there's a a beautiful sort of mile long trail in in a forest uh, uh, near an experimental university forest near my house uh, that leads to uh, a river that has a big rock in the middle of it that you can access. Uh, and so the game is about a trip to that place, which in some sort of unnamed uh, post-collapse future is where people meet and and you meet and you trade oh, and you make you make whatever arrangements you're going to make for the year so uh different groups of people come there and uh and that's what the game's about i literally i have i have that exact place like a 10 minute walk from my house. I'm like, I could play that game here. Like oh, it matches oh, up. So good. That is, that is historically, that uh, is historically the purpose of that, that little rock Island in the middle of the river. Like that's super cool. Well, I'd be happy to share it with you. So funny. That'd be cool. Uh, out of the three of us, I'm actually the most uh, apart from like what we think of as again, like this false idea of like nature as an, and again, falsely untouched, like 
tract of land somewhere. Like I live in downtown Oakland in California, which is a very densely populated city. Um, there, the natural world is all, it literally comes to my backyard, right? Like I, I sent a, a lot of friends, I think, including you, Jason, um, and over enthusiastically <laughs> captioned video of a Cooper's Hawk um, that dropped its dinner on top of my recycling bin. And the reason I noticed was there was that huge thunk. And then I looked up and there's, it was like 10 feet away from me. And it was so cool. Um, that's a dramatic example, but you know, like the pigeon that constantly fucks up your bird feeder, like that's still nature. Like your yard is nature. The weeds that grow up through the cracks in the sidewalk are nature. And I think, um, yeah. Um, but I think, uh, other game of yours, Jason, um, before I went on this tangent, is Darling Cory, which I've actually played. It's a game that you wanted to be played by a swamp. I was like, I know exactly the mosquito-ridden stagnant pool to play that. And it was really cool, um, the way the, the game was written, the language, um, even the instructions. Like, for people who aren't familiar, because this is one of Jason's Patreon games, um, you have to cut out these, like, two-sided, like, this happens or that happens options on a piece of paper, and then you let it kind of like twirl to the ground like a maple seed um and then whatever lands face up that's that's what happens um and uh bespoke games are really interesting um i guess the the question is how like when you make them are you are you committing to like this is a game that really only can be played like by i don't know if it was the eno river you're talking about but like this specific river yeah love the eno um yeah or uh or is this something where people could find a place like it and then adapt right. it. Yeah. And that's that's like the piece of that I was wondering, like, because I think Bespoke Games is great. And I think that there's a there's like a two-sided coin there. One is sort of like what Gian just said, here is a game that needs these components. You know, can you find uh, an elevated place that's overlooking some water with a really cool tree and something man-made? Design a game for that. Awesome, you know, that would be cool. Also, the piece that I think, you know, games and education, which is something that, uh, you know, we, we've talked about a little bit, there's also a desire to put forward that like you can go make a game, you know, go, go play a game, why not? Why would you not go to your local, why would you not go look at ants on the sidewalk? 40 50 or you know 42 year old person go you know be engaged in nature in a way that you're that we that is our birthright as as part of um, a living natural world that we are part of that's our birthright to be engaged with nature and finding the ways that we can if that's ants or birds out the window or get a house plant or you know any little way um really important and i feel like there's another piece there, which is to not just engage with the pretty parts of nature. And I think that's one thing that that Jason's games are really good about. Um, and your Cooper's Hawk story, Jeanne, is really good about because it's so easy, I think, for nature to either be just the pretty parts or just a backdrop to the action. Uh, uh, can I ways I, I just, to that. Something that's so important for me to say that, that is absolutely relevant to what you just said, Meg, is that I think we alternately fetishize and trivialize death, right? And we don't engage with it in our in our play. Uh, and uh, yeah. that's uh, I think that's a shame because games, you know, we promote empathy and embodiment as ways to understand things, but then uh, we do this thing that I don't I don't understand where death suddenly becomes becomes meaningless or, or or disposable or lightweight in a way that uh is a disservice to living yes yes anyway i could, I could go off on a tangent about that yeah. but i just wanted to get that <laughs> i think like space needs to be made for it like when i would larp outside with kids um we, it's not unheard of it was actually pretty common to find like a dead animal in in the woods it's the woods and um Oh, multiple times, like safely, obviously, like the, the sanitary aspect of it was like a safety concern of facilitation. But once that safety concern was met, you directly engage with it every single time. And uh, part of my training actually was like, you know, what happens if you find a dead animal? Like, make it part of your story. Um, like, teach kids mm -hmm. that this is part of the cycle and that like that 
animal in death is also going to ecologically be incorporated back into its its ecosystem um and that like you don't have to say this part but like with the implied like addendum and so are we right um we'll figure it out kids understand yeah yeah it's a system and you know what like kids are not afraid of it they would make these beautiful little altars with like fallen leaves we would do like rituals for them to like help them in passing but also sometimes we didn't make a big deal out of it it was like oh yeah and then we would move it and make like a little cairn or something so that we would know it was there and not accidentally like trample it while we were playing games but um it was it was something that we always just looked at and i think um, there are certain aspects that are just so emotionally hard for some people because they don't think about it frequently that touch on death, but also touch on like existential questions, right? Like right now, one that everyone alive, I think, is grappling with to some degree is climate change and like the, the accelerating rate of it. And it's really hard to look at. It's, it's very hard not to feel bleak about it. But in the same way as, as I think it's like kind of a disservice in role-playing games to be like, is something that's glossed over or only used as like a cheap narrative gambit or something like that. Like, I think it's possible to look at these harder questions as well um, in a way that can underpin uh, the emotional core of a lot of the games that we write and the games that we're interested in, which ultimately are, are these emotional questions um, and interactions. You find that the, the difficulty with them is something I feel like it comes with age. I feel like a a five-year-old, you know, a three-year-old, a five-year-old will encounter birth and the the natural world and death in a a more way um, much of the time than someone who's 15 or 25 or 45. You know, I feel like there's a space that we go through where we have we become separated we we get that sense of separate from our food or our waste or our you know inevitable demise um or any of that uh and it's it's a interesting process as game designers to figure out where we reincorporate that um that sense of connection that that we're we're bridging back into you know so much I think of what we do as game designers is in a way trying to get back to when we were just being in the woods and being like, okay, cool. So I'm gonna be like this kind of wizard and you're gonna be that kind of wizard and you're gonna be that kind of wizard and we're gonna like build a wizard stick house. And and it's gonna be awesome. Um, Organic. And and a lot of our work I think is trying to get back there. Yeah, like kids just intuitively start doing that the second they enter into those spaces with someone they want to play mm-hmm. with, right? And we as adults need all kinds I of- wanna, I want to do that every day. Like every time I'm like, I see you at a convention and I'm like, let's go build a stick house. But, yeah. you know, we're yeah. in a convention. I'm like, pillow yeah. fort. But they get they get a little annoyed with you if you rearrange their furniture too much. Yeah. I anyway. Mean, I think- um, really- I think- oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to suggest that we see if there's any questions. That's literally what I was going to say, is we're coming up on the 10-minute. <laughs> Same brain. So um, it looks like there's actually just some organic chatting going on, which is very cool. I think we addressed um, and, like, folded in uh, in biologist questions and um, shiny Prince Ben's questions. And I'm going up. Oh, okay. So we touched on this obliquely, but I'd love to be, like, way more direct and tangible about it. Robo Wist asked... Um, question that comes to mind as a result of Gian's comment, I don't even know which one, but fine. Gaming over the past months has moved to the online environment, so we now have experiences which are more artificial in quite tangible ways. Our focus during game sessions is on the pixels on the screen. Any ideas about how we can design games that emphasize our connection to the natural world, but that remain playable in these pandemic conditions? That's such a question. Mm. That's so That's a wonderful yeah. question. That's a whole channel. That is a whole channel. But I'd love to hear some brief ideas from you before I go in, just because I've been talking recently. Oh, uh, well, uh, turn your camera off. You know, focus on different things. <laughs> that's that's where I that's where I'd start. And it's the adva- advantage of also being uh, lower bandwidth, easier, uh, more accessible. Anyway, that's that's my immediate thought. Was like, it's all these things are are uh, opportunities to 
uh, use different senses. So use different senses. I think that's brilliant. I think that's really, really brilliant. And it, it puts us in a place that connects us back uh, thousands and thousands of years to telling stories together while we are doing something else. Because if I'm not needing to do this, um, if I could be sitting here, like also, I don't know, washing dishes or gardening or, you know, advertising papers, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, it engages different parts of your brain because you're, you have a physical active part and telling stories together is, is so ancient. I think that's a really, really good tactic. I would also say that um, an option we have more because of technology is to move our physical location. If I can go outside my cell phone and be sitting outside um, or go for a walk while I've, I've you know, got someone on the phone that I'm, I'm like, okay, cool, we're going to go, we're all going to, we're now is the part in our, our game where we have to go a place. Let's all go a place. You know, even if it's we just walk around the block each where we are, it will change our game and it will reincorporate aspects of the natural world in a way which we would never do at a convention. You know, Absolutely. so that's pretty good. That's really good. Really good. Yeah, um, and like my answer to this question, um, and thank you again for asking it, uh, kind of, ties what both of you have said together. Um, because my my usual question when people ask in a non-pandemic context, um, my usual answer, sorry, is to say like, go outside, right? Like literally leave your phone in your apartment or wherever and, and just go outside. But right now it's entering into winter. Not everywhere is Oakland, California, where today I think it was like a low of 64. Um, and like, it's not safe to go outside in the time of year. And so um, I think being able to, again, turn off your screen so that maybe you're, you're literally even just looking at your window. Um, it's, so, it's so technical and practical, but it really does have an effect because if you're just hearing someone's voice, it actually makes the gameplay, I think, more intimate. Um, and to also think about like, um, what are ways that you can involve different senses into it, whether it's touch because someone's engaging in a physical activity as you're playing, whether it's scent, um, I've been talking to some designers who've used sense of smell in a really interesting way, taste, like I've been using food and talking to Sharon Beeswas, who does a lot of like cooking um, and incorporates that into his design. Um, uh, sound, um, like again, like being able to kind of create auditory experiences just by virtue of like, instead of using this webcam mic um, and speakers, we're going to just use like the headphones with an inline mic um, and talk to each other where the audio quality is good. And it's also like most of what you hear, right? Like there are ways that you can design to actually guide and dictate someone's um, sensory experience in a way that I think can also tie into these other things we've been talking about that is 100% remote. Because um, when we say COVID safe games, really what we're saying is remote games, right? With the exception of a couple where maybe like on a mask is and getting together outside is okay but like generally speaking it's all remote right like yeah um we have one more question from turnip twinkle toes nice um the example of karen's and previous talk about museums makes me curious how much do you draw inspiration from how people have interacted with nature throughout history as well as nature itself um I love this is where I draw a big like 100% on the screen because <laughs> nature and history and human history is like they're you know they're like this um game, yeah. playing games and the natural world and human history is a, a a basket in which we carry our culture forward that's 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 what that is um yeah 100% totally agree I also just wanted to note that uh, Gianna's the sun sets on the West Coast are becoming more and more vampiric. It's exquisite. I <laughs> just really love it. <laughs> it's, it's very good. It's very good. The lighting doesn't, this is literally a light up globe. And like, depending on where I put it, it's either like kind of like a campfire glow or it's like we're all about to die. Um, 
Oh, thank you for, <laughs> for humoring uh, that. Um, yeah, again, 100%. Like, like we all, our ancestry have a birthright to connection with, with the outdoors. Um, and uh, I think it would be remiss to not acknowledge that in the U.S., a lot of outdoor education and work with the land is done on the backs of indigenous peoples and indigenous communities because of the history that goes into land ownership and then access to land, as well as like the skills, like for me teaching wilderness survival skills, right? A lot of the skills that I was teaching, um, some of them are, are like very universal, but there are also some specific techniques. Like we would teach a trap called a Paiute deadfall. That's literally a, a tribe. Um, and uh, I think if you're, if you're interested in that line of inquiry, it's very worthy to look at maybe like your own personal history and like going back, like for me, since I'm Korean, there's a lot of land skills that have to do specifically with being in the land in Korea. Um, but also think about maybe like where you're living right now and what the history of interaction with the land and play with the land might have been. Um, what artifacts it generated, what traditions it generated. Um, and I have another slant on it, which is about. Um, the ways in which are the world since 1915 really uh, uh, has aggressively isolated itself from the natural uh, fluctuation in temperature. Um, the advent of air conditioning, I, I get, I get like livid about air conditioning sometimes. It's it's a whole scene, but just allow yourself to be a little less comfortable you know go outside get you you don't have to like because one of the Jian, you're a thousand percent right and also a place where we put outdoor education is about specifically exercise for a certain physical form and it you know it has a militaristic overtones as well and just let yourself be a little less comfortable. It's really okay. You're not gonna die of exposure if you go sit outside and get really sweaty or wet or cold. You know, be safe about it, but oh, be out there. So the piece where looking to indigenous traditions for guidance, like with the right uh, equipment and knowledge, you can, very comfortably be outside in any weather if you have the right equipment and knowledge. Um, and that's to, to a very, very, very wide range. Um, um, I feel like that's to, an important piece too. Um, yeah, this ties into one last question I'd love to answer in the last like minute or two that we have, which is Shiny Prince Ben asked, um, are there any books, podcasts, or other inspirational media about experiencing the natural world you would recommend? And my list is like very long, but I can touch on just like two or three that jump immediately to mind. One of them is a book called What the Robin Knows by a man named John Young. He founded the Wilderness Awareness School out in Washington. It's about how to um, recognize bird behavior uh, through common backyard birds, birds that people don't think of as glamorous, like a robin or a house sparrow or something. And in doing so, you learn about not just the bird, but like the entire ecosystem around it. Why does it freak out and fly up when you walk in or your cat walks in, but not your dog, right? Things like that. Um, what the robin knows is incredible. It was written for the layperson, So you don't have to have an academic background to get through it quickly. Um, it's It was a bestseller, I think, for a while. Another one that is academic, but I think um, can be read pretty easily by someone who hasn't necessarily gone to a high level of school. It's called Tending the Wild, which is about uh, Pomo, Miwok, and Ohlone land management strategies in California, which is incredible because it talks about, like that seems so specific, but it's actually like everything. Um, and it talks about, among other things, why European agricultural practice drove a huge wedge between uh and our connection with the world. Um, I highly, highly recommend those two books as a starting point. Do you have some stuff, Jason? Oh, yeah, I'd recommend uh, John McPhee as an author generally who writes about um, the, the land and uh, also uh, indigenous ethnography and cultural history. So that exists for wherever you live. Um, the one I 
that that I, I recommend for the place where I sort of came came of age is Shempitz, Alaska, which is a cultural history of the Upper Cook Inlet, uh, written by a guy who uh, is, an, is a Denena Athabascan. Awesome. Um, I would recommend all of the children's books by Bird Baylor. It's B-R-Y-D is her first name, Baylor, B-A, uh, I think it's B-A-Y-L-L-O-R, um, illustrated by Peter Parnall. And these are formative books about it, it, uh, being part of the natural world. Um, and I also think that uh, as a role-playing game designer, uh, holy crap, children's books, do the story, make it, that's the story. You know, so children's books about the natural world and not just informative, like here is the rock, but stories about the natural world. I would also, please, God, go find a copy of Roxa Boxen. It's a children's picture book, Roxa Boxen, about children. It's a autobiographical um, children's story about growing up in the desert in the Southwest and being a kid in the natural world. Also. Um, uh, Dragon Scales and Willow Leaves, please find that book about two different interpretations of being in the natural world. Um, and, you know, I, I see little smiles in both of you, but so the whole range, I love everything that we've recommended and I'm, I want everybody yeah. to read all of them. This has been great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, this was so, this was so great. We're a couple of minutes over, so we'll say our goodbyes now. Um, and I'm sure if we have other recommendations, we'll put them up. And thank you so much for joining us um, here. Hey. You know, so you can actually, hi. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Good to talk with you. Bye. Bye.